Sign up to The Economist for in-depth curated expert analysis of world events and topics ranging from business and culture to science and technology. You'll get the weekly digital edition, online-only articles, curated newsletters on politics, the markets, science, culture and China, and full access to The Economist Podcast Plus. The Economist is independent journalism for independent thinking. Go to economist.com and get your first month free. This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Do you have a point of sale system you can trust or is it <clears throat> a real POS? You need Shopify for retail. From accepting payments to managing inventory, Shopify POS has everything you need to sell in person. Go to shopify.com slash system, all lowercase, to take your retail business to the next level today. That's shopify.com slash system. Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including eBooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Welcome to the New Books Network. Welcome to New Books in History, a channel on the New Books Network. This is Ryan Tripp, your host. I'm here today with the Ehrman Professor of European History Emeritus at UC Berkeley, Martin Jay. He recently published a collection of essays. The collection is titled Genesis and Validity, the Theory and Practice of Intellectual History, published earlier this year by uh, the University of Pennsylvania Press. Welcome to the podcast, Professor Jay. Great pleasure to be here again, Ryan. Or perhaps I should say uh, welcome back. Um, so can you discuss the uh, striking image on your cover? Uh, well, first of all, I can't uh, claim credit. Susan Zucker was the designer for the book cover, and she came up with, I think, a very striking image. Um, just beneath the title, there is something that looks either like uh, a tree uh, with its roots exposed, or like uh, some sort of brain um, image of neurons. And it captures, I think, the ambivalence, really, that I'm trying to deal with, uh, or the ambiguity, perhaps, a better way to put it, between uh, the ideas that um, are in our brains, as it were, uh, that uh, are in our culture, more broadly speaking, and their rootedness, their uh, genesis in some sort of soil uh, which uh, uh, nourishes them. Uh, and the question, of course, that I try to uh, deal with in the book is the extent to which they are grounded, rooted, uh, unable to move, or uh, in some ways able to travel beyond their points of origin, their genetic uh, sources, the ground out of which they emerge in uh, both the metaphorical and perhaps, as this image shows, even the literal sense of the ground out of which a tree uh, grows. So the image does a nice job of, I think, uh, suggesting that um, very question. So your introduction to this collection stops short at becoming a full-blown, quote, full-blown treatise of its own on Genesis and Validity, which I believe is a quote from a book by an intellectual historian, Peter Gordon. Context and text, imminent frame and transcendent meaning, etic and emic, all are discussed in your introduction. Please, if you can, briefly address each or 
one of those in turn, as well as your response to Ian Hunter's 2019 The Contest Over Context in Intellectual History. Uh, the introduction, of course, is an introduction to essays which deal with all of these questions. So I didn't want to preclude um, uh, what I had to say in the essays by somehow rehearsing them, uh, the arguments again. So I gesture towards what I think are perennial problems that exist uh, really in, in culture as a whole, uh, but which are given uh, a special, um, I would say, uh, a sharpening or a, a special reflexivity uh, in the discourse of intellectual history, uh, which is where I think they are staged, although not resolved. Uh, what I mean by that is that intellectual history is not um, a discipline that seeks final answers, that seeks knockdown uh, responses to alternative positions, but rather is in some ways the space in which uh, the various debates and various polemics um, are acted out, uh, are given a kind of reflexive uh, sharpness. Now, the question <clears throat> of imminence versus transcendence or uh, emic uh, versus etic, all of these are terms that are uh, sometimes used the, to basically refer to the same issue. Uh, the issue of whether or not an idea uh, can float freely above uh, the point, the context, the individual, uh, the culture out of which it emerges, uh, and whether or not it can claim something called universality or something called ahistorical meaning, uh, something that allows it somehow to uh, float uh, so freely that its origins are forgotten. Uh, and there would sometimes called a genetic fallacy uh, in which ideas are reduced to nothing but expressions of their origin are left behind. And intellectual history seems to me always hovering uh, or in a kind of tense relationship uh, between those who emphasize the importance of context and the need for historians to uh, regain contact, uh, contact with that context, that on the one hand, and then also honoring the fact that ideas do in fact travel, that theories travel, that concepts uh, have a history beyond the point of origin and the various points uh, of reception. And that uh, I've always liked to, to quote Randall Collins, uh, the sociologist of knowledge, uh, who said that intellectuals are people who produce uh, decontextualized ideas. So this is intellectuals are precisely uh, those uh, types of thinkers who say that their ideas are not uh, simply expressions or reflections of their point of origin. So uh, when, say, Plato developed his theory of ideas or forms, he didn't say, well, this is only true uh, for uh, the uh, Greek peninsula. It's not true for uh, the world in general or for posterity as well as the present. So intellectuals, we might say, are people who are constantly pushing to leave behind their context, leave behind uh, the moment uh, in which their ideas were uh, first generated and create ideas that will outlive uh, that uh, moment uh, of origin. Uh, <clears throat> and uh, the larger uh, background of this, we might say, and this goes as far back perhaps uh, as we can even think, uh, is the origin of writing. Writing involves the capacity of ideas uh, to transcend the moment of their utterance, the moment in which there is presence uh, of the person who uh, is espousing or uttering the ideas, and gain the capacity to 
uh, travel, to travel spatially, to travel uh, temporally past the lifespan of the people who create them. Now, intellectual historians, though, are always, I think, uh, uh, keen to uh, remind us that there was, however, a point of origin. There was an initial act of utterance. And the great contextualization uh, arguments of uh, Quentin Skinner and the Cambridge School and uh, Ian Hunter represents a version of that are worth taking very seriously indeed, that uh, historians do have to be aware uh, of the uh, local uh, and uh, spatially and temporally specific context in which ideas were generated because they were uh, initially uh, constrained by what was discursively possible at that moment and also by the audience uh, for whom they were intended. And even though, as I said before, with Randall Collins, intellectuals try to uh, create uh, decontextualized ideas, they do so in a context in which they're arguing against other claims for uh, similarly universal and decontextual ideas, and only some of those exist at that particular moment. So uh, this is, you know, I, I, we can go on and on on precisely this question. Uh, Emicinetic, just to use these terms from anthropology, involves the perspective uh, of the native and the perspective of the uh, external observer. And both can claim a kind of uh, value that uh, we know as uh, natives uh, how to uh, navigate the territory without a map. Uh, outsiders need a map. And so there's a kind of intrinsic knowledge that is lost when you have an extrinsic uh, observer. But uh, from the outside, it's always possible to bring uh, new understandings, new perspectives. Uh, for example, from an historical point of view, the perspective of hindsight, knowing uh, how ideas uh, were uh, intended, but also how they ended up uh, being realized in a future that was only uh, a possibility of imagination at the time they were generated. So all of these are uh, you know, ways to uh, think about the tools, we might say, to sharpen our understanding of the perpetual tension between uh, the origin or genesis of an idea and its claims to transcendent uh, value or validity uh, beyond the point uh, of origin, beyond the people or culture that originated them. If you can, please elaborate further on Peter Gordon's, quote, contextual and transcendental impulses, as well as contextualism vis-a-vis -vis Theodore Adorno's 1956 comments on Hegelian dialectical narratives. Also, how did... Uh, uh, go ahead. Uh, well, let me just... I mean, in, in a way, we, we've touched on the contextual and transcendental impulse argument already, but what I think the Adorno insight tells us is that... Uh, we have to be aware, we might say, of the uh, limits of our own moment, our own context, which is the context of uh, an alleged superior posterity, in which we look back condescendingly at the past and know better than it did about uh, the arguments that it was making, about the outcomes uh, that it was hoping for, and about uh, the value of uh, the ideas that uh, it espoused. So that we ought to, in a way, check our arrogance at the door and be open to the fact that the past might have something to tell us, might in fact have a kind of wisdom that we've forgotten or lost. Uh, he uh, makes this argument uh, with particular reference to so-called appreciations of Hegel, what is living and what is dead in Hegel, uh, appreciations which are always from the perspective of the present context. And instead, what he asks us to do 
uh, is to think uh, more humbly about how uh, we might look in the light of some of Hegel's own understandings. Now, you can take this from the perspective of other philosophers as well. How do we look from the understandings of a Spinoza or a Kant or a Heidegger or whatever? So it's very important, I think, to understand that we ourselves have a kind of limitation and we should be open to what transcends our own context uh, and uh, what transcends our own parochial uh, self-understanding. Uh, so what this suggests is that transcendence is not simply transcendence of earlier contexts, to come back to the uh, dichotomy that Peter, uh, Peter Gordon raises uh, between contextual and transcendental impulses, that uh, what we need to do is transcend our own context as well uh, in a mutual act, we might say, of reflexivity. If you could talk a little bit about uh, Frank Eckersmith's quote, sublime historical experience, you, you, bring, you bring it up uh, frequently in your collection, its relationship to uh, Johann Huizinga, and then the uh, quote, triangulated constellation um, of three poles. Well, this is a, a very complicated argument. I mean, uh, Frank Angersmith wrote a really challenging book called Sublime Historical Experience, and he composed it at the same time I was doing my own book on songs of experience. And we had a lot of uh, discussions. Um, we met and we also had email exchanges. And I uh, read his book for uh, Stanford Press, and uh, I was later involved, and I think we had one of the essays in this collection, uh, symposium on that book. So I've always been, in a way, stimulated by it. I'm a little resistant to some of its arguments. But in this particular, uh, uh, this particular essay, I raise it as a way to think about something that uh, gives us another way of approaching our relation to the past. Uh, the first way, and this is why it's triangulated, is to stress our need to um, make sense of ideas in their initial context to understand the ways in which uh, the englobing uh, uh, situations of uh, figures was extraordinarily important in the way the ideas were generated. Let's say a, a position that uh, Quentin Skinner and the uh, Cambridge School best uh, represents. The second part of the triangu triangulation, we might say, is the recognition that historians in the present, when we write about the past, are to a great extent uh, projecting. Uh, we're projecting either, as Hayden White argues, uh, rhetorical devices, tropological devices onto the past and how we narrate it, how we implant it, or as uh, Dominical Capra has argued, we are involved in a psychological transferential relationship that we uh, basically are not neutral in the way we um, look at various ideas and figures from the past. We get libidinally even invested in them, not in any direct sexual sense, but in the sense that they matter to us on a deep psychological level. And so we want to defend them, or we want to attack them, we want to see them uh, as still valid or as symptomatic of some sort of problem in the past. Now, the third position, which I think the sublime historical experience argument uh, suggests, is that in the present, we can be more passively surprised by, changed by, uh, an encounter with something that is a residue from the past that travels to the present. It's not simply recontextualized as if we were distant from it, nor is the result of our projection uh, either tropologically or psychologically onto the past, but something which disturbs the present, something which comes to us from the past. 
And the example that I always give of why this is so meaningful, at least to me, um, and I'll repeat this episode, I've talked about it a number of places. I visited the uh, concentration camp, uh, Theresienstadt, about, I don't know, 25 years ago now. And uh, my uh, mental uh, state of mind, we might say, was uh, very much based on uh, all of the narratives of the Holocaust uh, that I had uh, been immersed in. And, uh, you know, it was very clear that Theresienstadt played a role uh, in that uh, larger Holocaust narrative that was uh, very palpable. I was walking through it with several friends. But then suddenly I came in one of the cells uh, I came upon the rusting manacles of uh, Gavrilo Princip, who was the young boy who had killed uh, the Archduke Franz Ferdinand in 1914, uh, which then launched uh, a month or so later the First World War. And so suddenly my Holocaust uh, narrative, we might say, was interrupted uh, unexpectedly by the physical residue. I actually held the manacles in my hand of the a uh, prisoner in this cell in Theresienstadt, well before the Holocaust, who had uh, been responsible for an assassination which uh, created uh, some of the most, uh, we might say, devastating results in the history of uh, humanity. And so this was an example of a kind of sublime, not in a good sense, but of a kind of violent, terrible sense, sublime historical experience interrupting uh, my, uh, let's say, narrative uh, uh, normalization of what I was experiencing and creating in me a sense of uh, shock, surprise, awe, uh, anxiety. Uh, I, I was forced in a way to think how these two events, the First World War and the Holocaust, were related. Uh, it, it was quite a remarkable experience, which gave me a kind of personal sense of uh, contact, we might say, with uh, the larger argument that Anka Smith uh, very imaginatively makes in that book. So I'm going to ask you to accomplish briefly uh, th uh, three uh, aims here. Um, one, if you can elaborate just a little bit more on uh, critics of uh, Cambridge School contextualism. Two, um, compare and contrast it to the deconstruct deconstruction and deconstruction emphasis on um, iterability. And then three, you, you do mention in your book, again, quite frequently about event inter interventions um, by French scholars such as Claude Romano. If you can um, elucidate that a bit, that would be great. Well, I think the, uh, you know, the Cambridge School, of course, has had, um, you know, quite a remarkable uh, series of, of very gifted uh, historians associated with it. And they've done work, uh, people like Pocock and, and Dunn and uh, Richard Tuck and others, uh, that may not simply be uh, reducible to a, uh, an agenda, to a, a simple uh, phrase of, uh, you know, uh, kind of reducing them to something that's overly simplistic. Having said that, I would say that what they've done is to school us in the necessity of avoiding uh, precursoritis, uh, avoiding a sense of uh, the ultimate telos of ideas being uh, something that we ourselves uh, can see as the end of a long uh, development. So, for example, John Locke as the father of liberalism. Well, liberalism is not a term that was available uh, in the 17th century, and Locke uh, did not see himself as its father. And so uh, to uh, situate him in, in his particular context is to avoid uh, stressing the telos of liberalism. 
And I think that's a very valuable lesson. We have to uh, be uh, aware of the fact that uh, we can impose stories that are not the stories that the individuals themselves uh, at the period that they were alive would have uh, fully um, agreed with. Having said that, there are several, I think, issues that contextualism raises. First of all, the issue of what is the proper scale uh, and uh, articulation of the relevant contexts. So contexts themselves uh, need to be reconstructed in the present from the residues, textual and otherwise, given to us. And it's not clear what the relevant context is. Uh, is it the individual's life, uh, his or her psychology? Is it a small, uh, we might say, circle in which they operate, uh, whether it be uh, a school, intellectual school, or uh, some sort of movement? Or is it something larger, uh, like, for example, uh, bourgeois thought, something really as uh, gro gross and uh, generalized as that? So precisely which context uh, to, um, to apply is, uh, is I think, very uh, at least uh, up for grabs. The second um, issue that the Cambridge School, I think, very wisely raised uh, was looking at the speech act theory and arguing that uh, ideas had a performative quality. They were meant uh, to do something in their moment. They were not simply uh, statements. They were not constitutive, but they were performative. And so then the question obviously is, uh, to what extent do they transcend the performative context? And this goes back to the notion that I mentioned earlier of Randall Collins, that uh, intellectuals try to create ideas that decontextualize, that do more than just perform in a current discursive context, in a current debate, in a current dialogue, in a current argument, uh, but have the capacity to outlive and transcend uh, the, uh, the arguments uh, of that particular moment. And in a way, um, I suppose the idea of iterability, uh, the deconstructionist emphasis on uh, the ideas being reiterable, that they, they, they can come back again, but with a difference. So it's, uh, we might say, a similarity, but not identity. It's the possibility of repetition, but with difference, that ideas have the capacity in different contexts to mean something that uh, escapes the intentionality of their authors, escapes the initial, uh, what we might call, uh, discursive or performative context in which they were uh, situated. Now, to come to the idea of the event, and this is a very vexed issue. I mean, I, I've written about this at length elsewhere, and um, uh, in the current book I'm doing on uh, what I call magical nominalism, I have a whole chapter on the historical idea of the event, something which French theorists in particular uh, have emphasized. Uh, and here, in this particular context, I talk about uh, a man named Romano, who is less well-known than some of the other uh, figures. Claude Romano is a phenomenologist in France, uh, but not as well-known as some of the other major theorists of the event, uh, like Derrida and Foucault and Deleuze, uh, Lyotard and Alain Badiou. But what he tells us is that events, um, as opposed to what we might call normal historical happening, uh, intervene suddenly and uh, bring something new into the world, bring something unexpected into the world, bring something unprepared into the world. And as such, they cause us to question the sufficiency, but not necessarily the necessity, of the uh, context out of which they emerge. That uh, something new can't be entirely explained by what 
went before. It can't be reduced merely to its genesis or origins or roots, but in some ways, maybe mysterious to us, uh, creates the possibility of uh, change. And so the event is an interruption. Uh, but uh, what uh, Romano also says, and this is uh, a nice little uh, linguistic twist, an event is also an advent. Uh, it is something that uh, creates the possibility of a new adventure, we might say, a new uh, opening, a tear in the world, rather than a continuation, rather than the historicist, uh, one damn thing after another. Now, these events, uh, these moments of newness, rupture, uh, the moments of impossibility according to the previous uh, constraints of what was possible, they're rare. And one doesn't want to say that they happen uh, for every uh, you know attempt to create them. They often happen without people intending them. Uh, they happen almost the way a miracle disrupts uh, the ways in which uh, the normal functioning of nature operates. So uh, one doesn't want to overemphasize how important they are. But on the other hand, um, they also help us to resist, we might say, the gravitational pull uh, of contextual um, uh, possibilism. Uh, context says it is only possible to say this uh, because this is the discursive constraints uh, of a particular moment. This is the, uh, we might call, it, uh, environment of a moment. But in fact, they say, no, no, those, although constraining, are not uh, chains uh, which are so absolute that they can't uh, be broken. And so events give us uh, at least a kind of vocabulary to be, we might say, sensitive to the new, the unexpected, the impossible that disrupts the normal uh, course of historical happening. So you have an essay in your collection that compares and contrasts um, centered around uh, approaches to intentionality and historical reconstruction, <clears throat> Quentin Skinner of the Cambridge School and um, Hayden White. Um, and if you can... Uh, if you can explain that uh, particular essay and perhaps address, uh, you know, paradoxical irony, Socratic irony and radical reconstruction, de even deconstruction, um, that would be most helpful. Well, I think uh, that essay was, was an attempt to bring together two figures who uh, have been giants in our field uh, and people from whom I had learned uh, an enormous amount. And it was uh, a bit of a surprise that no one had ever really spent time thinking about how they fit together. And they were kind enough when the essay was first published to respond and uh, you know, just personally respond. And then we put some of the responses uh, in the uh, original essay in History and Theory when it appeared. They're, they're not actually in this collection. Um, so it, it, it was an exciting uh, experience for me to try to put together uh, two of the masters of uh, intellectual history and see what uh, happened as a result. Now, the way they fit together, it seemed to me, was to take very seriously uh, the importance of uh, the Cambridge School and Quentin Skinner's stress on intentionality and elocutionary uh, context. And in other words, that ideas are meant uh, when they're uttered to uh, perform something, to do something, to have an impact. Uh, and then to play this off against Hayden White's uh, very interesting tropological, uh, we might call it spectrum of different ways to narrativize the past with the one that he was most, I think, anxious about, which is irony. Uh, and my point there is simply that irony, historical irony, when you reconstruct the past, only works if you can 
uh, isolate uh, and identify the intentionality uh, of the actors, and this uh, includes non-intellectual actors as well, anybody who acts in history, the intentionality that they show, and the subsequent, uh, we might say, inadvertent uh, outcomes, the unintended consequences of their actions. That history is often uh, a very ironic story uh, of the ways in which good intentions go awry and, you know, the road to hell is paved with them. And so uh, in some ways you need both uh, a kind of uh, Skinnerian uh, uh, reconstruction of intentional uh, uh, actors and agents uh, who want to do something and also uh, a post-facto hindsight-filled uh, understanding of how their intentions are thwarted or at least uh, in a way uh, refracted through subsequent uh, historical happenings. Now, the really interesting question is what we mean by irony. And uh, there are a couple of examples. I give probably three or four. I don't remember them all precisely. But paradoxical irony, an irony which is so ironic, and here maybe Paul DeMond and other people have written about it in deconstruction tradition, uh, would be a good example, ironizes so much that we're uh, in a kind of, we might say, freefall. We don't know what the truth is. We don't know what uh, the uh, distinction is between what they intended and what came out, because everything is subjected to a kind of uh, ironic uh, undermining. And uh, this has been a very powerful impulse uh, in our uh, current uh, mood, uh, current uh, maybe at least when I was writing this postmodernist moment. And it leads perhaps to a kind of cynicism. History can't be written because it's always being self-ironized. Socratic irony is a bit more, we might say, hopeful in that it argues that there is a truth, uh, there is uh, something that is more firm, more grounded, that can be brought to the fore when we understand the ironic relationship between uh, what uh, is being said and what is being intended, when we understand the ironic relationship between what we know and what they uh, did not know, the way, for example, in the theatrical audience, uh, we will know that uh, Oedipus has done something uh, pretty awful uh, to uh, both his mother and his father. He doesn't know it, but we as the audience know it. He discovers it, of course, at the end of the tragedy. But the point being that we as the historical audience can have some sort of Socratic ironic relationship, some dramatic ironic relationship, we might say, uh, to the actors uh, that we're uh, trying to uh, write the history of. So all this brings, I think, into play the issue, once again, of the relation between the past and the present, the relation between a context that we try to recover uh, by uh, bracketing the present, by forgetting what happened afterwards, by forgetting uh, what, as I called earlier, is precursoritis, that on the one hand, and the inevitable ironic relationship we have to the past. So John Locke may not have thought he was going to develop something called liberal tradition, but we know that he was seized upon by liberals uh, as one of their, uh, in a way, grounding for, uh, uh, we might call it founding father figures, and that despite his own intentions, he was used in ways that uh, we now can't forget. So that's in a way what I tried to get at by pitting these two great figures, not against one another, but finding a kind of dialectic between them, which I think... Uh, helps to bring out what both uh, have as uh, potential instructors, we might say, uh, in the tasks that we now 
face as historians. Can you explore metaphoric oppositions as discussed in your essay on Isaiah Berlin and uh, Walter Benjamin? And what conclusions did you reach from this, quoting you, exercise in comparative metaphoric taxonomy? Well, this was a, a lot of fun, this essay. I mean, what I did just to uh, let your um, you know, audience know is to say that uh, if you take two people who had very little to do with one another, uh, although I find at the very beginning a, a kind of attenuated connection, uh, Isaiah Berlin and Walter Benjamin, uh, and try to understand how they have come down to us as figures uh, of interest, that we have to take into account more than just the substance uh, of what they argued, more than just their, uh, we might say, uh, labels as liberals or radicals or uh, modernists uh, and realists, or whatever the, the kind of conventional uh, ways we uh, pigeonhole them. But instead, we have to understand them perhaps in terms of uh, much more uh, imaginative oppositions that are metaphoric rather than literal. Uh, and Berlin himself, of course, gives us a clue as to how this operates uh, in his famous essay uh, on uh, hedgehog and fox as modes of uh, of intellectual life. So hedgehogs know only one great thing. Uh, foxes know lots of little things. And uh, Berlin was able to sort of divide the world into people who are hedgehogs and people who are uh, foxes, intellectuals or others who have one idea which they obsessively repeat and others who are so scattered they can't have any single idea. Now, what I tried to argue is that this one metaphor, uh, metaphoric opposition, uh, gives us a clue to the richness of other metaphoric oppositions, which might help us to make sense uh, of the dichotomy between Berlin and Benjamin. So I looked at a number of them, uh, priest and gesture, uh, jester, for example, which Leszek Kalikowski introduced, um, and uh, several others. The one that I finally uh, thought was most appropriate uh, to describe the difference between Berlin and Walter Benjamin uh, as intellectual types who had a certain claim on us uh, was derived from Susan Sontag's essay uh, on Albert Camus, in which she distinguished between intellectuals who are husbands and intellectuals who are lovers. A husband is safe, responsible, a kind of grown-up, a figure that we uh, feel uh, safe with. A lover, on the other hand, a uh, lover is intense, is uh, out of control, uh, is dynamic, is charismatic. Uh, we're willing to risk certain things uh, for a lover that we wouldn't for a husband. And this seems to me in some ways um, a metaphorically useful way to think of uh, the attraction that both Berlin and Benjamin have uh, on posterity, an attraction which, of course, differs uh, for many people. So Berlin is quintessentially a husband figure. I mean, he is um, a safe liberal, very upset about anything that is too extreme, very much a kind of conventional uh, figure in many respects, um, part of the establishment, uh, someone who uh, made it, we might say, in British uh, uh, intellectual and uh, political life, whereas Walter Benjamin was the quintessential outsider figure, uh, willing to gamble, uh, willing to uh, say crazy things based on religious or uh, even um, sometimes astrological uh, arguing, uh, you know, basically a, a figure who um, combined Marxism and theology in ways that seem utterly uh, incompatible. Uh, and one of the reasons why we find him so attractive, many of us, 
is not only because of what he said, but who he was. So the mixture, we might say, of the life and the ideas in both cases is very important. And Benjamin, as a lover, is partly a figure who uh, is attractive because he was the doomed lover. He doesn't escape from Europe. He ends up uh, dying uh, in a kind of miserable way uh, by his own hand, unable to escape. And there's something about his life which reinforces the kind of marginality and excitement of, of the ideas. So uh, I think the appeal of a Benjamin, the appeal of Berlin is tied up uh, not only with the ideas, but also the life and the way in which we have metaphor metaphorically understood them. Now, what conclusions result from this? I mean, basically, uh, it gives us a sense that uh, the grip that figures have on us often um, is different from the substance of their ideas, different from their political allegiance. So I note that on the left today, there is a certain fascination uh, for figures, for example, uh, like uh, Carl Schmitt, uh, who was, of course, a Nazi uh, and uh, in many ways a very, very problematic figure politically, and yet a very dangerous figure, a figure who uh, had qualities that endear him to people who were anti-status quo, anti-liberal, uh, 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 we might say, uh, uh, consensual uh, politics, uh, a figure who uh, emphasizes the importance of uh, dramatic interventions, uh, of friend and foe relations, which people on the left sometimes find attractive. And my argument would be they find uh, Schmidt attractive, not simply because of the ideas, but also because of the fact that he lived, as it were, on the political edge, the way, say, Ernst Junger did, or uh, to some extent Heidegger. And we sometimes forget their literal politics and see them as transgressive figures. Uh, and we like the fact that they are transgressive. Um, so what this shows, and this comes back to the point I made earlier about uh, uh, Dominico Capra's notion of transference, that sometimes we transfer and the metaphors give us a kind of affective quality, transfer something onto the people in the past that we find attractive or repellent for that matter, that allow us uh, to uh, have an interest in them that transcends the interest in the dryly understood, straightforwardly evaluated ideas they might have uh, represented. Who was Hans Blumenberg and what prompted his posthumous, posthumously published Rigorism of Truth, which is a comparative study on the goal of understanding virulent anti-Semitism, a goal that you argue uh, was shared by Sigmund Freud and actually Hannah Arendt. Why did he focus on these two figures and what is your critique of his conclusions regarding Arendt? Uh, it's interesting that you would ask who was Hans Bloomberg. Um, he is still, I would say, uh, a figure to be discovered, a figure who is relatively unknown. And yet uh, in the past 30 or so years, a number of translations, Robert Wallace in particular, did three of his great books, uh, and uh, a number of um, responses to him, there are several anthologies, and he even has a reader now, have made him a little bit more of a player. But uh, in our own understanding, he's always been one in Germany, but uh, he's now becoming, I think, more internationally recognized. But he was uh, sui generis, that is to say, he did not belong to any one school, influenced a bit by phenomenology, um, close to the so-called... Uh, the Griffsgeschichte or uh, conceptual history school of Koselik, but also distance from him. Was he a philosopher? Was he an intellectual historian? Um, 
Uh, hard to say. Uh, maybe both, maybe neither. Uh, what were his politics? He was not very much involved with that. He was a somewhat isolated figure. So he is uh, a figure of some, I would say, continuing mystery in the good sense that there's a great deal there still to be uh, discovered. His great books, uh, The Legitimacy of the Modern Age, The Genesis of uh, Copernican Revolution, and Work on Myth, very, very large books, are extremely difficult, extremely, in some ways, obscure, but yet enormously rich. And I constantly go back to his work in the um, book I'm writing now, Magical Nominalism. Uh, his discussion of the importance of medieval nominalism is one of the uh, guiding, uh, I would say, uh, sources that I'm using. All right, now, he did also write uh, a lot of uh, little essays, some of them published, some not, uh, which have been subsequently uh, rescued from his nachlas, from his, uh, uh, the materials he left behind. And one of them was a little essay he wrote called Rigorism of Truth, um, which is then supplemented by some of the notes in his note cards. It was published first in German and then English a couple of years ago. And it's a very curious uh, little exercise. What he does is look at Sigmund Freud, Moses and Monotheism, and Hannah Arendt's uh, infamous book uh, on Eichmann in Jerusalem and argued that both of these were, uh, in some sense, a, uh, an effect of the, uh, their author's uh, belief that truth, no matter what, should be followed. That, in other words, the idea of uh, let the world be damned, let the consequences, let the ships fall where they may, uh, we uh, you know, must tell the truth. Now, the truths that were told by Freud and by Hannah Arendt were, in some sense, so Bloomberg argued, deleterious to uh, the uh, self-image of the Jewish people. Freud did it by undermining the idea of Moses as a uh, founding figure uh, of uh, Judaism uh, by showing that he was an Egyptian, uh, by showing that uh, there was a murder involved. And it was a very strange understanding of the Moses figure. And uh, Freud himself was very... Uh, ambivalent about bringing this uh, out as an argument, especially uh, at the moment when the Jews were being so badly uh, persecuted uh, in the late 1930s. Hannah Arendt uh, was interested in a different reality, a different truth, uh, which was, so she argued in her work on uh, Eichmann Jerusalem, that Eichmann himself was banal, was not a seriously monstrous figure. And this was perhaps the second most uh, in a way, uh, controversial point, that some Jews, those who were uh, the capos uh, in the concentration camps, uh, were in some ways complicitous uh, with uh, the uh, Holocaust, uh, that without the Jewish councils uh, playing a certain role, without uh, the capos um, uh, the in the camps being willing to play along with the Nazis, the Holocaust would have been perhaps less uh, uh, horrible. Now, this is very controversial. And the point that Bloomberg makes is that in both cases, they were undercutting what might be called the mythic self-understanding of the Jewish people. And this was, uh, in a way, a, an outgrowth of his argument that myth, and this is the argument of work on myth, uh, is not fully supplantable by logos, by reason, uh, by uh, a kind of absolute uh, secularized demythicization. And that instead, the, what he calls the absoluteness of reality, which is the unforgiving quality of 
a reality which makes us, uh, in a way, scramble for ways to deal with it. The absoluteness of reality needs myth. It needs a kind of story that we tell, a narrative of origin or a narrative of where we're going or some sort of way to orient us in the world. Uh, and the absolute truth, which is that none of these work, that our stories are all fictions, um, that they're all rhetorical, uh, we might call media uh, or short-term uh, mediations, which give us uh, only uh, imperfect responses to the absoluteness of reality, that we need these, that we can't, we have to hold on to myths. Uh, now, I'm not sure Bloomberg himself really instantiates this because his own work and this is why he's a metaphorologist. That is to say, he does an ology of metaphor. He does an ology of myth. He's interested in knowing it through, we might say, a logos. Uh, he is, in this sense, on the side of what we might call science rather than myth-making. But nonetheless, he says, in the case of these two um, challenges to the Jewish myths of origin, both the myth of the origin of the Jewish people with Moses and also the myth of the uh absolute horribleness of the Nazis as a founding myth of the uh, Zionist dream of an Israeli Jewish state, that these were in some sense uh, problematic and that they should not have in fact been, um, uh, you know, been made because of the way in which they undermined, uh, if, to the extent that they did, uh, a necessary myth which helped the Jewish people survive uh, an extremely harsh absolute reality. Um, so these are, you know, very deep and, and complicated questions. And Bloomberg, with his, uh, I would say, characteristic audacity, uh, raises them in a very stark way uh, in this little essay, uh, this little book. Really, it's not much more than an essay uh, on the rigorism of truth. And he's opposing both rigorism and also the absolute necessity of truth telling in the name of a certain, we might call it insufficient reason, uh, which is uh, the use of rhetoric, the use of uh, myth, the use of metaphor, the use of anecdote, all of those things which help orient us uh, in ways that are necessary in a world that is uh, impossible to fully understand, impossible to rationally penetrate, impossibly, uh, impossible to know in all of its uh, confusing truth. Can you explain the Lovejoyan approach to the history of ideas? I think in, the, in an essay, you compare it to the uh, Cambridge School, as well as alternatives such as conceptual history and uh, Blumenberg's metaphorology. Also, what are two principal lessons that historians of ideas and intellectual historians can learn from the writings of Michel Foucault? Uh, Lovejoy, Arthur Lovejoy was a great uh, historian of ideas and a philosopher in the early 20th century. He founded the History of Ideas uh, program or school or club uh, at Johns Hopkins, and uh, he really uh, was an enormously uh, influential figure. I mean, his uh, books, uh, most notably The Great Chain of Being, are still read with great profit. Uh, Lovejoy was interested in the history, not merely of ideas, but the history of what he called uh, unit ideas. A uh, unit idea was below the surface of an idea, um, of an explicit idea. In other words, uh, the distinction between, say, um, a kind of pluralism and a uh, monolithic view of the world, that there were some people who were constantly looking for the principle and others who were interested in many different principles. Uh, he was also interested in the ways in which ideas had uh, an affective quality, um, what he called the metaphysical pathos of ideas. 
So uh, he, uh, you know, led a, a movement which emphasized the importance of finding uh, continuity over time, which showed that these ideas had history. So, for example, the Great Chain of Being, which goes from the Timaeus of uh, Plato up through uh, the uh, uh, 19th century and uh, evolution, is an idea that he was fascinated uh, with uh, trying to uh, make sense of. Now, the problem with Lovejoy and uh, history of ideas is it often was uh, so totally decontextualized that it hovered above the world, that the idea simply floated, uh, the unit ideas as well, a little bit uh, too freely. And intellectual historians who emphasize context, uh, like the Cambridge School, or emphasized the importance of intellectual biography, felt that the history of ideas was, uh, to a great extent, um, uh, you know, let's say supplanted by other approaches which did a more sociology of ideas, uh, sociology of intellectuals uh, uh, way of understanding uh, our uh, history, uh, the history of the past. Now, the uh, conceptual history approach, um, which is identified mostly with uh, Koselleck, Reinhard Koselleck, uh, and a number of his other uh, German colleagues, uh, looks at ideas not so much as if they are uh, coherent over time, either at the level of unit ideas or more explicit ones, but rather emphasizes the importance of the ways in which certain words that we use uh, have histories that move uh, in a kind of, um, we might say, cumulative way that produce uh, residues uh, of the past, sedimented layers of ideas. And uh, the ideas are grouped uh, within concepts which uh, grasp them. Uh, begriff in German has the idea of begreifen or grasping, but which don't reduce them to an essence, don't reduce them to an uh, inherent true meaning. And what I think this does very uh, helpfully is to warn us against looking for ideas etymologically and saying the original use of an idea, the original coining of an idea was its true meaning. So it goes against the notion of saying, uh, looking at the Greek or Latin origins of ideas and saying, aha, this is what they really mean. And what happens afterwards is simply uh, a, a kind of false or faint uh, representation of what initially was the idea uh, as it was first expressed in those uh, languages. Not to say that we shouldn't take etymology seriously, but just that uh, the way it was used 2,000 years ago doesn't make it the true way. It's not as if it's a coin that was minted uh, then, which then simply uh, is passed on to the uh, future generations. Similarly, it argues against what we might call the presentism of understanding an idea in terms of what it means for us. Uh, and what it tells us is to take seriously the way in which ideas gain a kind of uh, series of different uh, meanings over time. And with Nietzsche and with Adorno, it argues against the importance uh, of defining ideas, that ideas should not be simply, or words should not be defined, but their usage over time, it's kind of Wittgensteinian point, is more important than any attempt to still the uh, variations uh, to create a kind of false unity or a false essentialism uh, produced by uh, definition. So I think that's a great, uh, you know, let's say, lesson uh, of, of that um, uh, tradition. Now, Bloomberg's metaphorology, and I said before, it's an ology of metaphor, so it has a kind of uh, rational quality to it. 
uh, at least uh, in the way in which it uh, approaches the, the metaphors, emphasized not so much the history of concepts, but the history of uh, basic metaphors which exist uh, over long period of time that uh, will maybe less explicitly uh, color the way we understand the world. So, for example, light as a metaphor of truth, one of the earliest essays that Bloomberg wrote, the idea that we understand um, truth in terms of enlightenment, uh, of appearance, uh, of something which shines forth. All this has a great metaphoric, uh, we might say, cargo attached to it with the idea of light versus darkness, the idea of illumination versus obscurity and so forth. Uh, and it's not without its uh, problems. So the idea of clear and distinct ideas uh, in the work of a Descartes um, is matched uh, by the importance of, say, obscurity, the importance of, uh, we might call it, uh, the shadow in the idea of other philosophers who later emphasize the impossibility of absolute presence, absolute clarity. Uh, what we might call a more Baroque sensibility. And I can go on about metaphorology for uh, quite a long time because Bloomberg's metaphors, the ones he's traced, are extraordinarily fascinating. Uh, shipwreck uh, with Spectator, for example. Um, uh, he, he has a number of different specific examples of metaphorological research, which shows how ideas uh, are carried linguistically, not uh, as dry concepts, but as uh, very vivid metaphors. Now, finally, what do we get from Foucault? Well, Foucault gives us an enormous amount. Uh, one of the things that he tells us is uh, the importance of rupture, the importance of discontinuity, the importance, and this goes back to the idea of the event, of uh, what has not been expected, which somehow uh, can destroy the sense of historicist continuity. He also, and this is, of course, a lesson that he, uh, in a way, derived from Nietzsche, he also is important for telling us that ideas are not innocent, that they are often imbricated uh, in, uh, let's say, context of power, and that ideas are often tools in intellectual combat. They're often ways to gain a kind of advantage rather than simply achieve a disinterested truth. So Foucault is one of those figures who is able uh, to debunk, we might say, an overly idealist and overly uh, idealistic understanding of ideas, uh, both in the present uh, and the past. Much more, of course, can be gotten out of his genealogical or perhaps archaeological methods. Uh, Foucault is a figure who, uh, you know, we keep on learning new things as more of his um, lectures come out, uh, translated uh, lectures from the Collège de France. He's uh, one of the great, uh, we might call it, intellectual legislators of the 20th century. This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Do you have a point of sale system you can trust or is it <clears throat> a real POS? You need Shopify for retail. From accepting payments to managing inventory, Shopify POS has everything you need to sell in person. Go to shopify.com system, all lowercase, to take your retail business to the next level today. That's shopify.com system. Can you discuss debates over the central arguments and their consequences of uh, Georg Lukács' 1923 History and Class Consciousness? In addition to his approach to history, as well as objective uh, possibilities. And why do you describe contemporary supporters of his contentions as adhering to Le Baidu's fidelity to the event? Uh, what I did in this essay was to go back I, I, and look at um, history and class consciousness. I, I was asked to uh, do a paper for a conference at Chicago 
uh, on, uh, was, uh, I think it was the 100th anniversary of 1917, on various great texts uh, from that period. So other people wrote on, say, uh, Lenin's What is to be Done or on uh, Trotsky's uh, uh, book on literature. Uh, various other works were discussed. I was asked to talk about history and class consciousness. I went back, and it's a book that I've written about in the past, and I put a lot of pressure on the first word in the title of the book, which has not often been, I think, uh, stressed in understandings of Lukács' oeuvre, the importance of history. Now, Lukács uses history uh, as a way to resolve philosophical problems, the antinomies of bourgeois thought. Uh, and what he does is to say that history, and he talks about world history in particular, uh, is a great meta narrative of liberation. A uh, narrative uh, in which the transition from capitalism to socialism will be a transition from uh, an age uh, of uh, alienation and reification to an age uh, of uh, fulfillment, liberation, uh, of uh, human, uh, we might say, uh, happiness or uh, human, uh, you know, we, we, lots of different ways to think about it, whatever communism is going to bring about. Now, what this entailed was a single meta-narrative of history in which all of history, and this is very Hegelian, can be ingathered, we might say, into a giant story with uh, a certain, we might say, subject of history, whether it be humankind or the proletariat or uh, a universal class, which the proletariat uh, will become, uh, uh, or a class-less society uh, after the end of capitalism. All of this involves a kind of faith that we can tell history as if it were a single story. Now, what I was upset about, in a sense, by rereading this book, was the fact that we can no longer uh, look at, um, and maybe we never could, history in this way. That history has proven since the hundred years or so since that book was written uh, to have many different stories, many stories that go in directions very different from the emancipatory uh, one that Lukács invested so much of his hopes in. Uh, and this involves the idea also of objective possibilities, which he took from Max Weber. The idea that history was not simply random, history was not simply uh, a series of one damn thing after another or uh, of random events, but rather contained within it possibilities which were objectively there, which could then be subjectively realized. And this was true of the uh, class consciousness of uh, the working class, which had uh, an, what we might call essential or imputed objective class consciousness, which should be revolutionary, should be anti-capitalist, and had, uh, unfortunately, an empirical class consciousness, which was at the moment not yet quite as radical as it should be, uh, and therefore needed uh, a uh, basically a mediator, that is to say a vanguard party, to help bring its imputed or ascribed class consciousness, sugerechnetis klassenbewusstsein, to the surface and allow it to become its actual class consciousness. Now, what this was uh, in a way grounded in was a belief that history was going in a certain direction. The working class is imputed or ascribed class consciousness was part of an objective possibility. And what we needed was a vanguard party to realize it. Now, this seemed to me uh, a plausible hope in 1917, 1918, 1919, 1920, when he was writing the essays that uh, made up history and class consciousness, but it quickly came a cropper. 
And we now, I think, are uh, unable to feel much hope in that. So Alain Badiou, who's a contemporary French uh, Marxist, uh, has argued that what we need to be is uh, faithful to the event of 1917, uh, which was, he hopes, uh, and it is, I think, nothing more than a hope, a prefiguration of a potential future which will realize the latent possibilities in it. So this is, a, I think, a rather desperate uh, belief that, first of all, faith, so it's not knowledge anymore, it's almost a religious fidelity, uh, to an event which is allegedly going to prefigure, even though it failed, future successful uh, realizations of it. One which perhaps, in a you know broader sense, uh, harkens back to the idea of uh, the uh, first coming of, uh, of Christ and then uh, his uh, parousia, his second coming, the idea that we have to be faithful to that uh, first event in the hope that the second coming will bring about redemption, uh, something that I'm, alas, not very uh, uh, you know, capable of sharing. So I end, uh, I mean, that essay is a rather sour essay, which argues against the hope in history that Lukács uh, had uh, held in 1923, history as a meta, uh, single meta-narrative, we might say, of redemption. Uh, and also, uh, I, I'm not very, I think, persuaded by the idea of fidelity to that particular event. Please briefly re- recapitulate your assessment of challenges to the mimetic ideology of a photograph's truth, uh, including uh, the four components and her subjective nature of lying, uh, Walter Benjamin, 1931, Little History of Photography. Um, he goes, you know, the ideas of optical unconscious and the aestheticization as constructivist juxtaposition, the Derridian lineal boundaries, Foucault, etc. And I think also the importance of discursive context. I was just actually discussing th- this conceptually with um, my students yesterday. Uh, this is a very um, complicated essay. Lots of moving parts, lots of balls in the air, lots of uh, you know argumentative moves. And I'm attempting not sure to discuss it with my it. attempting to discuss yeah, it with my it, students. <laughs> it, it's 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 a challenge, and I you know I of course we read the essay to prepare for our little conversation, and I, it makes lots of, of different moves, um, which I don't think I could fully do justice to here. Let me simply uh, say that uh, basically photography um, or the photograph and I wanted to distinguish between photography and the photograph, the latter being uh, an instance uh, taking a photograph as a particular act uh, producing an image and photography is the whole institution uh, of photography with its history with its dissemination with uh, all the ways in which photography relates to art and so forth um, the, uh, the mimetic ideology of the photograph which said that a photograph is an indexical trace of what it portrays and therefore has a kind of veridical quality has been uh, much attacked that people have argued, no, no, photographs are just as constructed, just as artificial, we might say, as a painting. And that the indexical quality, the trace of the real on the photographic image uh, doesn't in fact mean much, that photographs need to be understood as conventional rather than uh, natural. Now, this is a very, very complicated argument with everybody from uh, Roland Barth uh, to uh, Joel Snyder and Michael Fried. And, you know, it's, it's an extremely complicated argument. Uh, what I want to do in this piece is to say that we can understand the truth of um, photographs, or at least approach it, by understanding them through the lens of the question, can they also lie? Uh, 
can a photograph lie? Truth telling is one thing, lying is something else. And of course, I'd written a book many years ago called uh, the um, uh, a book on uh, on uh, political uh, lying or lying in politics called The Virtues of Mendacity, in which I struggled with the issue of what is a lie and where is it uh, significant? Uh, and where is it even uh, perhaps, uh, you know, let's say, uh, defensible? And here, when I came to the conclusion, I guess I, I got it from elsewhere, a lie as a speech act has four different um, dimensions. One, that you know in your mind what is the truth. Uh, second, that you utter what is uh, not what you know in your mind, the opposite of it. I know that it's raining outside, but I say, no, no, it's sunny. Uh, the third thing was that you have a performative relationship to the uh, person who hears the lie. You're trying to convince the person that the lie uh, is the truth. So you're trying actually not somebody to say something that is not the case. You're trying to persuade somebody performatively uh, to believe that. And fourth, uh, the lie is successful if the person does believe, in fact, uh, that you have told the truth when you have not. So then the question is, how do we apply this to photographs? Uh, one could argue the photographs are not speech acts. Photographs are showing rather than telling. Photographs have no linguistic dimension. Now, to go through a very long argument to come uh, straight to the conclusion, uh, I use uh, a number of figures, including Derrida, the distinction between the work and its surrounding uh, frame, the ergon and the para-ergon, to say that photographs, although uh, showing, although involving images, are also always already embedded in discourse. That photographs have, and this is why the original coinage of the term photography, photograph, involves the writing, uh, the writing of nature, the writing uh, of uh, something that uh, is not simply shown, they always involve somehow uh, a, let's say, discursive moment. And this happens, of course, when we give them captions. It happens when we write about them after the fact. But they're always already, we might say, in the institution of photography, always already present. And therefore, photographs have the capacity through this imbrication of the shown and the told, uh, they have the capacity to tell the truth, but also uh, to uh, fib, to lie, to be uh, involved in the kind of processes which allow us to see them as more than just blank records uh, of uh, what they uh, simply show. So that's a kind of very reduced notion uh, of how uh, photographs uh, are not simply mimetic, uh, not simply uh, indexical traces, but also have within them uh, discursive uh, parergon, we might say, which uh, invade the ergon of the work and which can either tell the truth or lie. So on that note, in the con you mentioned Roland Barthes, uh, and can you discuss his concepts of stadium and punctum, but uh, more photo quote, photographic residues of the past. And in that context, um, in turn explained the debate that arose over D.D. Huberman's introduction to the catalog for the 2001 concentration camp exhibit in Paris which I believe included four crop photos um, by Jewish prisoners. Um, in your response, please address any distinctions, theological or otherwise, between D.D. Huberman's uh, images in spite of everything and Anker Smith's, who we discussed earlier, concept of sublime historical experience, as well as the event. 
All right. Once again, lots of issues on the table. Uh, Roland Barthes' concepts of studium, uh, rather than stadium, it's studium, and punctum, uh, very helpful. I mean, what he argues is that there is something in a photograph that is part of, we might say, the conventional cultural uh, context in which it is uh, first produced and then received, and we are able to then immediately interpret it. And it has a kind of quality, we might say, of restoring order or at least being consistent with what we brought to it. The punctum, on the other hand, is, and you can hear uh, the idea of punctum as a kind of puncture, uh, like a wound, uh, is something which tears us away, something which shocks us, something which uh, has a special libidinal quality, something which uh, uh, maybe only for us, but which uh, creates uh, in a photograph uh, a strong sense of rupture rather than continuity. Now, this is uh, perhaps applicable, doesn't work with all photographs, to uh, the four photographs that Georges Didier who is a French um, uh, art historian very interested in photography, uh, the uh, discussion he made of the four photographs from uh, a concentration camp that survived and uh, that had become the subject of a great deal of controversy. They were uh, shown in a uh, particular exhibition uh, in Paris uh, 20 years ago, but have been you know, widely discussed. Now, these four photographs are very unusual. And this is why they have a kind of more like a punctum quality than a studium. There are many, many photographs taken, from, uh, taken by uh, Nazi photographers uh, during the Holocaust. Um, for some sick reason, they wanted to document their evil acts. And so we have many photographs of prisoners being lined up, of uh, even horrors being committed uh, in the camps. Um, and uh, these photographs give us a documentary, uh, we might say, record of what happened. And people like Claude Lanzmann and others who say that images can never do justice to the Holocaust uh, feel that we ought not to rely on them, that it's a mistake to try to show the Holocaust. Now, the four photographs that Didi Ubermann were discussing were not made by the Nazis. Uh, they're not very well, uh, you know, uh, they're not documents that show us much. They were taken by uh, a capo, not by uh, one of the victims, but by a capo who uh, was able somehow to have a smuggled uh, camera uh, and then allow his um, his film to be smuggled out uh, to take images of the uh, horrors that he saw. And they're not very explicit. They're, they're fudged, they're uh, dark, they're cropped, they're blurred, they're lousy photographs from a documentary point of view. But, and this is Didi Ubermann's point, they are themselves, uh, we might say, uh, residues, uh, physical residues of the actions taken against the Holocaust uh, killing machine uh, by uh, the Kapos who wanted the word to get out, wanted to show to the world what was happening. Not from the point of view of the Nazis, but from the point of view of the victims. And as such, these four photographs are like, and this is the um, relationship to Didi, uh, to, uh, to Ankerschmidt, they are like uh, those physical residues of the past that shock us out of our uh, normal understanding of something. They create a sense that the victims were not simply passive, that the victims were actively trying to subvert what they were being uh, subjected to. 
and that the act of heroism, the act of desperate heroism on the part of the photographer, and we only know his first name, he was a, a Greek, we don't know his full name, um, uh, that this act of heroism was an image in spite of everything, uh, malgré tout, an image in spite of everything that tried to normalize it, uh, that tried to make it part of the killing machine. And that therefore, these are images that give us a kind of access to the past in a non-documentary way. They're images that don't document what happened. They are residues of the actions taken to thwart what happened. And they're meaningful to us today in ways that uh, I think were comparable to the Ankerschmidt notion of a sublime historical experience, which uh, shakes us rather than uh, uh, makes us feel comfortable in what we know about the past. In that sense, they're like the punctum rather than the studium that Roland Barthes uh, argued some photographs uh, will have uh, in relation only to, of course, some of us. Uh, many apologies, I misspoke. Uh, studium obviously is not st stadium. Um, all right. What do you mean by the ironic heroization of a transient present? How can it be reconciled with modernity ideas promulgated by Emil uh, Durkheim, uh, Max Weber, and Georg Simmel, who I guess uh, Georg Simmel is kind of receiving a lot of attention nowadays. Um, yeah. in, in your response, uh, if you can, please explain objectivist frameworks versus relativist perspectivism, the tragedy of culture, the unfettered kind of neurosynaptic emotional response of technology, and the relevance of romantic and comic modes of heroism. Uh, a lot on the table there. Let, let me focus on uh, the heroism of modern life, which, of course, is a phrase that uh, has been much repeated. Baudelaire and other people are associated with it. Walter Benjamin used it. Uh, what exactly does that mean? And I begin by looking at, uh, at uh, Michel Foucault's understanding of it. And it's ironic. Uh, these are heroes that are not your normal heroes. And when I say normal, I mean basically the heroes that are understood romantically or comically. Uh, heroes uh, who are on a quest, uh, heroes who are uh, involved in some sort of uh, endless uh, romantic desire for, say, a holy grail, whatever it might be, or heroes understood, uh, as Hegel did, in terms of world historical figures who are able somehow to bring about uh, the great uh, changes which allow uh, history to become rationally meaningful, the type of uh, meta narrative that uh, we find in a uh, uh, in Hegel, or as I argued earlier, in a Lukacs. Uh, these are heroes that are much more banal, much more modest, much more, um, in some ways, uh, not larger than life. They are the same size, we might say, as life. Um, and what they're able to do is to take the present in its transience, in its imperfection in its lack of fulfillment, uh, in its even alienated and reified state, and say yes to it, say we can't escape it entirely, uh, that we can't somehow uh, fall back on a past nostalgically and relive that, nor can we live entirely in the hope that the future will be uh, redemptive and will get us out of the misery of the present. Uh, it's a way to live uh, heroically with the uh, in a way, uh, imperfect reality into which we are thrown. And to say that we cannot escape it, that it's a kind of to, uh, to hit it head on, to look at it head on. But having said that, to understand it ironically, um, to understand it not as a fulfillment 
of all of our hopes and dreams, not as somehow something that we could validate as if it were, uh, uh, you know, a favile doctor bisser schön moment uh, in uh, say Goethe's Faust's sense of, uh, you know, saying, yes, this is the moment that is so perfect. I want it to be, uh, you know, forever. We don't want that because that would be uh, somehow a false understanding of how imperfect it really is, but allows us to live with, we might call the dual consciousness uh, of uh, saying yes to the present and being fully aware of its imperfection, of its, uh, and this is why the tragedy of culture argument uh, is relevant, that culture has a tragic quality, that in the various ways that Zimmel points to that, the fact that subjective and objective culture don't come together, the fact that we can't fully live in a culture in which we are unalienated and so forth. All of this is a, uh, we might say, truth that the heroism of modern life uh, is willing to face. And my argument in this essay is that the great sociologists of the modern period, and here I just look at the normal canon of Durkheim, Weber, and Zimmel, were in touch with this heroism of modern life, that sociologists uh, are not believers in the other kinds of heroism the heroism uh, of the romance, the heroism uh, of uh, the comic hero. They're, they're not uh, people like, uh, say, Thomas Carlyle. They're much more sober. And to this extent, they represent um, in their own register the heroism of modern life that uh, figures from Baudelaire to Foucault found a warrant for a kind of approbation, uh, even in this most unheroic uh, of modern periods, uh, in which we recognize that heroism uh, may be, um, you know, a, a kind of fantasy which we can't uh, easily uh, obtain. So this is a little bit more straightforward question. What are epistem or seemingly straightforward? <laughs> what are epistemological and ontological questions raised by the dual meanings of history? Please explain the fallacies um, in this particular essay, um, and also the three alternatives that I guess, unfortunately for our listeners, do not quite answer the questions posed. All right, now, uh, when I say the epistemological and ontological questions raised by the dual meaning of history, what I mean by that in the English language, uh, it's not true of other languages always, but history means two things. One, what really happened, what happened in the past, the events, the actions, uh, the uh, structures, whatever you want to call them, that uh, happened in something that we call the past. And second, the writing of what happened. Uh, history is the narration or the analysis or the recreation or the reconstruction of what happened. And the question that all historians face is how these two are related. How what happened in the past, the ontological reality of the past, we might say what really happened or you know, something that we understand to be the object of our inquiry, how is it related to our knowing the past epistemologically and then writing, narrating, recreating, reconstructing the past? Uh, how do they fit together? Now, there are two, what I argue on the spectrum, two extremes uh, that uh, have uh, been, uh, you know, basically um, advocated. One, and it seems very naive to us today, is what we might call a positivist or hyperrealist one, in which we can understand the past as it actually happened. Uh, the phrase, of course, V.S. Eigenlinkewesen is often identified with Leopold von Ranke, uh, and in a way that I think caricatures the subtlety of his thought, but which uh, is the positivist uh, slogan, 
that we should understand the past truthfully as it really happened. We should get back to it uh, rather than playing tricks uh, on, on it from the present. And this involves um, a scientific understanding of the sources, a willingness to separate fact from fiction, uh, history from legend and myth, uh, a willingness to uh, be somehow humble in our understanding of uh, the ways in which the past um, speaks to us uh, through its sources, through the sources that it leaves behind, uh, that we don't make it out of whole cloth, that we have to listen to those sources and uh, tell it as truthfully as we possibly can. That on the one hand. Uh, the opposite position, uh, sometimes associated with deconstruction or post-structuralism or post-modernism, is the utter constructivist idea that the past is simply a post-facto construct uh, on the part of the present, that we impose meaning, uh, we impose uh, our narratives, we are basically uh, making of the past uh, a modern fiction. And Hayden White is the best, perhaps, exemplar of this position, uh, the idea that all history is meta-history, all history is tropologically constructed as a comedy, a tragedy, a romance, a satire, or ironically, and that we basically can't avoid that and get back to the past as it actually was. Now, both of these seem to me um, with, uh, you know, in, in a kind of perhaps caricatured way, uh, they seem to me extremes that we can't quite uh, embrace. So I look at the middle ground, uh, and I argue there are three different ways we might make sense of this. One is falsification. We don't know the truth, but we can falsify. We can use uh, let's say the exposure of uh, false um, evidence, uh, forgeries and whatever, to explode uh, previous arguments. We can also use the discovery of new facts, uh, however we understand the fact, uh, to uh, discredit previous interpretations. Karl Popper is a great example of this in the history of science, not verification, but falsification. The second is what I call the new experientialism. We've talked about this with Anker Smith, who basically tries to bracket epistemological questions of truth or falsehood, and simply hopes that we can get in touch with, be shocked by, be uh, in the presence of sublime experiences. Although I find these valuable for reasons that I mentioned earlier, I don't think it really answers the great burning need that historians have uh, to be as truthful as we possibly can uh, to the past, rather than simply throw up our hands and say, uh, simply because we can't, uh, anything goes. So the third uh, position, and this is the one that I basically am pushing, is what I call institutional justificationism. And this involves two things. One, the idea that it's not the individual historian. It's not the lone, so, uh, solitary historian who grapples with questions of truth uh, and falsehood, uh, but rather the community of historians, the institutionally credentialed community of professional historians. Now, there are, of course, people outside the community, amateur historians, people who are sometimes called barefoot historians, who also make contributions. But I'm in favor, I might, we might say, perhaps naively, of the idea that the growth of professionalization in history has created uh, standards uh, of plausibility, which, of course, are not perfect, which change, which are open to uh, later, uh, we might say, rectification, which are about as good as we can get when it comes to verifying or even falsifying the past. And we do this, and this is why I call it justificationism, through uh, acts 
of justifying our arguments by presenting evidence, by using arguments logically, by considering alternatives, by considering uh, our own position. That is to say, we're reflexive about who we are and what we're bringing to the table, what our biases might be, and so forth. And this, alas, is perhaps all we have as a check on fake news, uh, on uh, the absolute uh, collapse of fiction uh, and fact, the absolute overcoming, we might say, of the reluctance uh, of uh, historians to uh, be fabulists entirely. Uh, and I think it is a real reluctance. And one way that we can take seriously the need to avoid the collapse of fact into fiction is a point, and I think I cite David uh, Carr to, this, uh, uh, to, to, to make this point, that what happened in the past constrains the present. Uh, that if I put uh, the wrong ingredients uh, into a recipe, if I try to make a, say, souffle, it's not going to work. That the past acts of putting those ingredients together will create the possibility for a present that uh, is a souffle or not. And that we ourselves are weighted down to a great extent by what has happened, or what we've inherited. And therefore, we don't make the past out of whole cloth, but we are uh, in its grip to a certain extent. Now, we can also get outside that grip, and that's why I argued the importance of events and advents in Romano's sense. But what this means is that historians both are constrained by the past and also, um, in a way, presently involved in a process of making sense of it, which is open-ended, which involves justifications, which involves the intersubjective community of historians, and which knows that truthfulness is perhaps uh, as good as we can get, because truth will always be uh, an asymptotic regulative ideal towards which we will never, uh, uh, which we will never fully uh, achieve. Please, if uh, you can, please uh, compare and contrast uh, theory f uh, from philosophy and the growing semantic divide between the two. I mean, you note issues of psychologism, Cartesian exaltation, increasing clarification, and then noetic and dianoetic approaches. Um, any of those in that discussion would be, would be uh, helpful. And what are the benefits of a negative dialectic between the two? Uh, the words theory and philosophy are words that have to be understood in a begriffsgeschichte, a conceptual historical uh, way. That is to say, we can't define them. We have to understand their histories, usages over time. Sometimes they've been uh, synonyms, sometimes they've been antonyms. At the moment, they seem to act uh, as either or. Uh, and uh, sometimes theory is seen as philosophy done in literature departments by amateur philosophers. Uh, my point is that, no, it's wiser perhaps to take theory in its own uh, uh, you know, terms, such as they are, as a check on certain of the uh, unproblematized assumptions of philosophy. Now, one way to think about this uh, is to go back to the uh, Genesis validity argument. Theory is often, I would say, much more self-conscious, at least the way we use it today, of its imbrication, its entanglement in networks uh, of power, uh, in, uh, let's call it subject positions, uh, the theory that is itself an expression of the context out of which it emerges, of the theoreticians who espouse it. It does not strive for the absolute and total 
well, we might say transcendental uh, quality of philosophy, which thinks that it is able to deal with perennial ideas without worrying about its own past, without worrying about its own, uh, let's say, messiness, uh, without getting its hands dirty uh, in the world out of which it comes. So my point about uh, psychologism and rhetoric uh, is that uh, history uh, and psychology and rhetoric are always already, we might say, uh, moments in any philosophical discourse that, uh, uh, in a way, prevents it from being a pure. And the theory is more, we might say, sensitive to impurity. Uh, deconstruction, for example, is always talking about impurity uh, than philosophy is, which tries somehow to gain clarity, tries to gain, uh, we might say, uh, a kind of uh, definitional space rather than one which emphasizes uh, the importance of usage over time. Uh, and just to come back to the argument uh, of a Blumenberg, uh, the metaphor of clarity is one which is derived from uh, the idea of light being better than darkness, the idea of what is distinct being better than what is blurred and so forth, and that uh, philosophy uh, is based to a certain extent on uh, a kind of rhetoric, a metaphoric rhetoric of uh, light versus darkness and so forth. So what theory does is to alert us to that. Now, having said that, what philosophy alerts us to is the necessity of justification, of argument, uh, of more than just the splash and dazzle uh, of uh, language, uh, of arguing that uh, philosophy does, in fact, find a way to disentangle thought from uh, language, logic from rhetoric, and that it's wise to take that effort into account, that everything is not always gravitationally brought down to the level of uh, the genesis, but also can transcend it. So what I argue at the end of that essay is for a negative dialectic of the two, that we can't bring them together in one simple package, uh, but with the question of genesis and validity in general, we have to play one off against the other. And every time we look at the genesis of ideas, we'll discover that we have latent in them uh, certain, let's say, uh, perennial, transcendental uh, ideas, maybe even universal ones. But every time we look at philosophy and try to discover universal essences, we find within them, uh, let's call them the impurities of place, the impurities of uh, who is speaking, the impurities uh, of language uh, understood rhetorically and so forth, uh, the impurities of, as I said earlier, psychological transference, uh, that nothing is uh, completely and totally uh, capable of abjecting those things that are inherent uh, in the mixture uh, of uh, both uh, theory and philosophy that is our, uh, let's say, uh, mental relationship to the world at large. So to wrap up, uh, please provide application and theological context for the functionalization, or I guess you, you call it the weaponization of free speech. And um, if you can address the four functions of free speech, the boundary itself and negative liberty, et cetera. That would be most helpful. The last essay in the collection uh, tackles the current issue of the weaponization of free speech and argues that free speech has always been functional in the service of something else. Uh, it argues that uh, we've been very interested in the domains, uh, to use Robert Post's term, or uh, the spaces of application. So the free speech uh, is okay, say, for example, uh, in a uh, political arena, but may not be okay in an academic one in certain respects. Or uh, the speech on a stage uh, is very different from the speech that occurs uh, 
without the aesthetic frame. Uh, I'm not interested so much in application as I am in what I call the teleological context uh, for speech. So I argue that there are um, four of these. The first with which we're mostly familiar is the idea that free speech is helpful uh, in the search for truth that allows those justifications that I argued for before. It gives uh, what Wilfred Sellers called the space of reasons uh, in which we can speak freely, giving reasons rather than being afraid uh, that we'll be shut down uh, or afraid that we'll be prevented from speaking because who we are. So the idea of speech uh, in the service of gaining the truth, very uh, old position going back to Milton and supported by John Stuart Mill and others. The second is the idea that free speech allows the expression of subjectivity, of opinions, uh, of uh, fears, thoughts, values uh, that are internal to a subject, that allows the autonomy of the subject, the subject who is uh, able somehow to let what is inside come out. And the value is the public expression of what is uh, suppressed or what is held inside. Uh, and this is a value in and of itself. It has nothing to do with truth. Uh, just simply a value of letting it all hang out. The third function of free speech is intersubjective, it's dialogical. Uh, it's uh, the idea that, uh, for example, democracy is deliberative, uh, that it involves me telling you, me trying to persuade you, me trying to uh, have an impact on you, me trying to do something rather than simply express something uh, to create a new uh, reality through a performative speech act and also, my being willing to listen, to learn from, to be affected by your speech acts. So that free speech involves also the capacity uh, to have a space of dialogue rather than a space merely of expression uh, of interiority. And that things happen in that interspace. And that's one of the great functions of free speech, especially in politics, but also in art. The final function uh, of speech is the, we might say, creation and uh, the evaluation of significance, of meaning, uh, of something which has nothing to do with truth, but simply gives us uh, an orientation, symbolic and otherwise, in the world. So that we have, for example, in free speech for works of art, uh, something which allows us to gain aesthetic experience of the world, which enriches uh, our understanding of it, enriches our lives, not because it shows us necessarily the truth in any sort of uh, traditional understanding of truth, but because meaning is uh, enriched. And the world is sometimes construed as uh, meaningless, but sometimes construed as replete with many different meanings. And free speech is one of those things that allows those meanings to emerge and be discussed as well as appreciated. So all of those are necessary, it seems to me, uh, uh, to allow us to defend free speech. But what we can't do is defend it in terms of its own intrinsic absoluteness. So what I'm arguing here is that the weaponization of free speech for other purposes has always been part of the real defense of free speech. Free speech understood uh, not as an end in itself, but as a means to uh, either the uh, understanding of uh, truth or the expression of, the, of internal meanings and feelings uh, or intersubjective dialogic deliberation uh, or uh, the, uh, we might call it, uh, proliferation uh, of meaning uh, in the world. Uh, so that's the way the, uh, you know, the collection ends with the discussion of a very current issue and tries to contribute to it by looking at it 
in terms of the functions it performs rather than uh, its claim to be absolute in and of itself. So for a final question, if you uh, can discuss uh, what project are you working on now? You mentioned uh, a new book on uh, magical nominalism, and um, I was wondering if you can elaborate on that. Well, this is a big project. I've been working on it for many, many years. I started it uh, really about 15 years ago and then put it aside when I did uh, uh, two or three other books. Um, it's very hard to really put into uh, a, a quick soundbite. Uh, nominalism, as I mentioned before, Blumenberg and others have argued uh, is one of the great founding moments uh, in the history of uh, Western thought. Nominalism emerging, I mean, there are earlier antecedents, but emerging at the time of William of Ockham, uh, 14th century, maybe earlier with Duns Scotus, and undermining uh, the importance of realism in the scholastic sense, creating the possibility for the scientific revolution the possibility for a great num- number of other things that we associate with modernity. Now, the basic argument of my own project is that although this is true of what I call conventional nominalism, which emphasizes the constitutive power of the self-asserting subject, to use Bloomberg's term, in the face of a radical contingent world, there is also a subcurrent of what I call magical nominalism, which emphasizes a much more passive subject uh, who is open to the wonder of a world which is not a world of real universals, but a world of particulars, uh, which have a kind of quality of ontological truth to them rather than being the effect of post facto constitutional creation. Now, this would, I can't go into it now, and maybe in five years we'll have another conversation about that book, (laughs) Uh, opens up lots of questions uh, about language, about names, about uh, the ways in which magic uh, in uh, maybe a plausible sense still survives in the world of science, uh, the way in which Jewish nominalism, to use a term that Ag- uh, Agatha Bielek Robson has introduced, may be different from the Christian nominalism that comes out of uh, William of Ockham and the Franciscans of the 13th, 14th century. All these are um, things that I'm ra- grappling with now and hope to then apply to our understanding of history, our understanding of art. Uh, I've written a, a little piece on Adorno and musical nominalism, and finally to our understanding of photography, uh, which I've also written about in terms of photography and magical nominalism. So, but that's a, a book uh, to be discussed uh, at some later date, God willing. <laughs> so, sure, God willing. Um, okay, so the, thank you uh, again for being on the podcast, Professor Jay, once again. Uh, the book is Genesis and Validity. The Theory and Practice of Intellectual History, published uh, this year by Penn Press. On behalf of Professor Jay, this has been a production of New Books in History, a podcast channel on the New Books Network. I'm your host, Ryan Tripp. Please tune in next time.